Episode 9, Night Terrors. My name's PG Bell. I'm Sir the Doctor. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Sarah Barry. Thanks for downloading another Impossible Podcast. For those of you who are expecting a commentary, you know, that commentary that we promised you, I have an apology to issue. Uh, we did record one last night, and it went fantastically. Until I accidentally deleted it, we did try our best to recover it. We got some of it, so we do have chunks of last night's full-length commentary. We will be dropping bits of them into our discussion this evening, uh, as and where they're relevant. So if the course of the audio suddenly switches, and you hear Doctor Who in the background, don't be alarmed. You're hearing the remaining fragments of the podcast. That would have been... I really am very, very sorry. Uh, apologies to our um, panellists uh, this evening for dragging you all out again. Um, except Anna, she lives here. She has to come home. <laughs> she wasn't <laughs> so we have, I we don't have, have to come home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we might be editing that bit. Hmm. No, I have a suspicion we're doing that one. <laughs> yes, we have discussed all of this twice, which hopefully means that we'll be twice as good because we've had some practice. So, you've heard us introduce ourselves. Now, you might have heard the name Sarah Burrow before. She's our brand new podcaster, joining us for the first time. Well, second. Or second, <laughs> first and a half uh, this evening. Sarah, welcome to Impossible Podcasts. Thank you for joining us again. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself briefly, starting with Doctor Who particularly. Where do you stand on Doctor Who as a show? Um, I like it, obviously, otherwise... Probably wouldn't be doing this. You don't, um, you don't have to. It's not obligatory. Well, that's true. Um, I'm a new Who fan. I know little to nothing about old Who. Shame. Much to Swindon's displeasure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a fan of the new Who and the new Doctor. Any particular Doctor or any particular episodes that you really like? I mean, how, how, how do you think Matt Smith has been doing? I quite like Matt Smith. I think he's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I've quite enjoyed him as the Doctor, even though not necessarily all the storylines have been brilliant. But your main area of expertise, it should be noted, is Harry Potter. It is, yes. Okay, which uh, I'm sure we'll be bringing up in a future podcast. Yes, coming soon. Indeed. Well, that's the introductions done. What did everybody think of the episode as a whole? Let's, uh, Anna, I'll start with you. And I think I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It was perfectly entertaining. I don't really have much opinion either way. It, it entertained me for an hour, and that, that was pretty much it. I think I preferred it to Let's Kill Hitler, um, just in terms of character development in it. It was a bit of relief not to have so much story arc in plots and kind of river songs. Not that I'm, you know, have very strong opinions about river song, but it was quite nice to have something that was just kind of story arc light, I, I think. Um, so yeah, it was not quite a nice self-contained story. Uh, Swithin, I liked it at the beginning. I thought, now this could be quite interesting, nicely set up, very well directed in parts, uh, generally a very good atmosphere to it. I thought, okay, this is going to be a proper story, unlike last week, which was a sketch show. 
really. And then I discovered what was going to happen about halfway through, later than uh, Sarah did. Uh, and then, yeah, then it had a really awful Matthew Graham-style ending, at which point I wanted to kill people again. The power of love heals all. No, 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 it doesn't. Especially, especially when it, is, is that what you're referring to though? When when you talk yes. about the ending? Yes. Yeah, that I want heads to explode at that point. Sounds like something James would say. Yeah, I know. I, I, I don't know. He's, he's not, influencing me. Not enough exploding heads then. Yes, especially at the end. Okay. Uh, Sarah, how about you? Um, I didn't think it was too bad. I, as Swinton said, unfortunately, I guess what was going on probably about ten minutes in. So it's always a little bit disappointing when you know what's going to happen. Um, but I didn't think it was too bad. I liked the doctor's attempts at parenting, the small George. And it was, as Anna said, it was a nice relief from the main story arc. What's it for me? Okay. So we set the standard high here. It's not <laughs> yeah, appalling, so it's okay. Distinctly muted uh, response so far. I, 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 I should probably explain that I am more of a Doctor Who fan by proxy than a, a kind of yeah. Doctor Who fan. Yes, but you're, you're what fandom calls a casual viewer. <laughs> the, the prized casual viewer by which the uh, ratings are done. No, I prefer or, or Doctor Who fan by proxy in that my husband makes me watch it. Your fault. Love me, love my Doctor Who. That was the deal. You signed up to. So, um, Pink, what did you think? Um, I think I'm probably very pretty close to Anna's point of view on this, in that it was a fairly solid, entertaining filler episode. Um, it was a nice relief to last week's terribly arc-heavy plot, and I did enjoy Let's Kill Hitler. Um, but I just felt it was quite refreshing to have a step away from that and to have what turned out to be a deliberately quite simple um, and simplistic storyline. As uh, you both said, Swithin and Sarah, there wasn't a huge amount to it. There weren't many twists and turns thrown in. It was quite obvious what was going on. But in terms of tone, in terms of character, I think it was quite nicely put together. Um, so nothing exceptional. But, uh, but yeah, entertaining and scary where it needed to be scary. Something of a return to form for Mark Gatiss, which we'll get, I'll get onto later on. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. So what do you think of the setting of this episode? It's quite a bit different to what we've been used to in the last year or two. It seems to be harking back to the, the roots of New Who. Yeah, well, the, the, the council estate setting in particular. It's just those opening shots. I mean, you sort of mentioned the, the cinematography and the direction right. of those opening few sequences. I think James Willis talked about it in his review which is on the blog as well, just beautifully set up, beautifully shot, and a very grimy, grungy urban setting, which we haven't really seen since Mob Back took over, but was part of the course when Russell T. Davis was shown. Yeah. Um, Moffat is decidedly upper middle class. <laughs> well, no. It's got a scar child from Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I, I, I don't know whether Moffat's from Glasgow. I have no idea. I don't know which bit, but um, Russell T. Davis is from... Uh, suburban Swansea originally, so hardly um, what we'd call the inner city projects. <laughs> Spent a lot of time in the hip, hip end of Manchester mm. there. So. But, but no, if, if you think of all of the, the stories set on contemporary earth, which, which were a, a touchstone oh, yeah. of Rusty Davis' storytelling, it opened on the power estate with Rose in that very first mm. episode. We kept coming back to Rose's family and their estate, which looked oh, course, very yeah. similar visually. You had uh, other stories throughout uh, the series run that were set in and around these council estates, these 
slightly run down urban sprawl of suburban London. Uh, but but then again, that's the sort of drama that Russell T Davis excels at, isn't it? It's everyday kitchen sinks suburban in it and inner city drama. Whereas I think Moffat has been deliberately going for a very different tone from that, so it's been more. Especially real. going. It's quite interesting looking at um, Moffat's back catalogue in terms of his um, stories that he stacks. You've got Joe Kick Apart, which is, of course, very middle class couples suburban comedy style, and then you've got Chalk, which again was um, teachers, so it, it does tend to be set around a very kind of similar backdrop mm. of people. Yeah. Whereas Russell T Davis, he he it's does go working class yeah. generally, isn't it? Yeah, I mean even in terms of queer as folk, there's an awful lot of what feels like the cutting edge of life rather than the the kind of the comfortable mm. middle income kind of life that you get there. I think within Doctor Who specifically as well, Moffat, of course, famously described his approach to the program as dark fairy tale. Uh, which are spoons hanging his head. You, you, oh, you're not a fan years. of the <laughs> No, it, it, I don't know. It's just it's been used so often. It, it, it's just completely devoid of any meaning. Um, but he did say that, so continue. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> um, but, but it has been uh, far more storybook in its yeah. tone and setting, because if you compare the opening of Rose, again, the council stayed with the opening of The 11th Hour, which is Amy's house in the country in Leatherworth, and it's a small sort of picturesque, uh, again almost storybook picture postcard village, mm. and yeah, we keep coming back to that when we when the series restarted with Let's Kill Hitler, we were in a cornfield, and so that's the sort of setting that we keep coming back to. It's a bit more outlandish, a bit more phantasmagorical. Um, and this episode had, it had two because you had the Doll's House, which was Victorian mm-hmm. and stylized and very almost Neil Gaiman esque in its visuals because you had the oversized bits of furniture. The dolls with giant yeah. china heads, but at the same time, you had this gritty, grimy, run down council estate as a counterpart. So, you say it was grimy though, it was distinctly clean. <laughs> so when you go for the show, it's like, where are the needles? Where is the vomit? And where are the body parts? Not to stereotype council estates. No, 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 of course, it's just not. But if you want to do grimy, grotty, I mean. Thinking yeah. down to the, the landlords. Mm. Given the character you set up for him, actually his flat and certainly the carpet, which obviously he's eventually eaten by, it's clean. It's fairly clean, actually, mm. for uh, the character you set up for I, him. I can't see any reason why people's the inside of people's flats wouldn't be clean because they didn't have to live there. Oh, but the anymore. the way that character was set up, you you should have seen like cans of wife beater on the floor. You should you should have seen like bag stains <laughs> or. Former wife, probably. Um, Possibly a little hard hitting, really. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Pro- pro- I'm going to imagine get put away with yeah, it. But, but that was the general idea. But then I think it's kind of refreshing in a way not to have council estates portrayed as, you know, this is the scum of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> this is where people go to, you know, eke out the rest of their beautiful lives, kind of portrayal of council estates, which is what you would run the risk of in terms of. Um, when you're switching settings like that, the temptation would be to go to the more extreme and to go to the more caricatured. So I think that kind of mistake in making it too clean is probably the better kind of mistake they could have made. I, just, I, I see that, but I think it will add realism of a little bit. Not necessarily to the extent as I was saying, but you know, at least have a little bit of dirt. <laughs> 
So we were laying all of this at Moffat's door, and of course, as showrunner, he does have overall responsibility, but it was Martin Gatiss who actually wrote it, so I'm not sure how familiar he is with rundown council estates, because I think he yeah. tends more towards the uh, picturesque. Well, he loves his hammer. He, he's quite the uh, the gothic Victoriana. Oh, very much. He does like his period stories, doesn't he? Did a good history of horror on the BBC4. His, yeah, his, his BBC4 documentary series was fantastic. Yeah, like All they need is someone to bring it right up to date with uh, the post 70s. So, Mark Gatiss, Mark Gatiss, Mark Gatiss, Mark Gatiss. Yes, we did discuss Mark Gatiss as the writer in the commentary last night. We have managed to salvage that part of the podcast, so here it is for your listening pleasure. We haven't mentioned Mark Gatiss yet. Of course, Mark Gatiss, the writer of this episode. I, we do have to issue a correction and an apology, because at the end of last week's podcast, I was um, quite brazenly and confidently stating that this was the first episode he had written since The Idiot's Lantern way back in series two, having completely forgotten Victory of the Daleks But Mark year. Gatiss has as well, so he didn't want you to mention it. Well, yes, <laughs> people have joked, uh, and for those of you who actually got in touch with us, uh, thank you for, for reminding me. Uh, that I'd simply scrubbed that episode from my mind. Ah, I can't uh, imagine I, why. I hadn't. I had, I had forgotten that he wrote the episode. So this this could be seen as Mark Gatiss's attempt at redeeming himself. Is that where he has to have a redeeming yeah. ending? He has, well, he, he's quite a divisive figure in Doctor Who fandom circles as far as his writing of episodes goes. Well, uh, where where you guys? Because his his episodes to date are the Unquiet Dead way back in series one, which everybody which pretty much which liked. Was, uh, the Doctor meets Charles Dickens, and there are zombies at yes. large in Victorian Cardiff. Yep. There are there was the Idiot's Lamp, which uh, was um, it's not Prunella Scales. Who what's the name of the actress? Uh, the Wire. The TV is sucking people's oh, faces yes. through their televisions. Film just a few streets away in uh, yeah, yes, it was. Yeah, the yes. about two minutes walk from here. Uh, a friend of a friend's house, actually. Was it? Okay. Yes. And that was set during fifties. Uh, yeah, the fifties and the coronation celebrations. There was a motorbike. Yes, right. So a Vespa. Well, mm. yes. Well, a Tardis, Tardis blue Vespa, which I'm a little sad as hasn't made a reappearance because I, I know they left it behind. But so yeah, Mark Mar- Mar- Gatiss is quite dead. Uh, yes. the Idiot's Lantern, a Victory of the Victory Daleks, Daleks, which yeah, he. A lot of fans seem to either love him or hate him. Now, I I really liked the Unquiet Dead. I thought that was an effective because back in series one they were still establishing what the series could do, mm. and they were showcasing effectively the range of stories that it could tell. So you had the contemporary um, Earth-based science fiction drama. You had the far future um, science fantasy. Farce. It was almost a comedy, and then you had the Victorian ghost story mm. uh, with zombies thrown in, which Mark Gatiss handled. And of course, Victorian phantasmagoria is a sort of thing that he excels at. He does like his period pieces, uh, which is why I think the Doll's House settings here are slightly more effective than mm. perhaps his council estate. And we are again tapping into this childhood fears idea again aren't we yes. which we tap into a lot he likes doing scary yeah it was very simply it's it's what sort of goes bump in the night isn't it and this mm. time it's in a cupboard good old cup of tea here mm. in this scene absolutely Mark Gatiss could be credited with writing the first deliberately scary episode of Doctor Who way back in series one yeah which as we discussed was uh, the unquiet dead mm-hmm. and there were certainly creepy elements of 
the idiot lantern. This is quite clearly setting out to be one of those scary Doctor Who episodes. Uh, do we think it succeeded in that? Sarah, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think it didn't do too badly. There were some scenes that were very sort of obvious, with particularly with the dolls in the, the dollhouse and some very obvious shots of you just waiting for them to move. It's not a surprise when they do actually sort of come to life. But the dolls themselves are fairly horrible. They are quite scary. You were saying in the podcast that won't be um, about the way that they change the dolls take over. Oh, the transformation, the when, transformation they, when they bit. catch people. Yes, Which I thought right. was quite good. I think I was saying that uh, they could have used very slick, smooth CGI mm -hmm. morph from one state to another, but they went for a deliberately old school stop motion effect, which brings to mind all those old Ray uh, Harryhausen and monster movies. But I just find that little bit more unnerving because it's, it's deliberately unnatural. I think the thing that stopped it being properly effective was just that it wasn't. The episode was never really from the child's perspective, and it was all the thing of childhood fears, and it was the embodiment of all kind of his fears combined, but it was never from his point of view. So you didn't really get that sense of fear of, you know, what the boy was scared of. It was all the adults responding to these childlike fears, which I thought was a bit of a misstep in terms of... That's um, a very good point, actually, yes. Yeah. That's, that's something I don't think we've considered uh, when we do it. does make a lot of sense, because... My complaint with it was that it was very self-consciously trying to be scary and mm. doesn't, didn't have the underlying plot or theme to actually carry that through. It's just like, oh, you're trying to be scary. It's not. You know, you, know, you, you, you need the backing, you need involvement of the characters, you need genuine threats, mm. with which there isn't really any genuine threat. I, I, I do think it's guilty. I do think it's guilty of being scary for scary's sake. Uh, but I don't think it fell as flat as it could have done for all of that. Um, I do think they dragged out some of the scenes with Amy and Rory just walking around in the dark. Oh, and this and is the stupid thing ever. It's like, oh, they're going to get in the door, so why don't we run past them and then run to the other side of the house and barrack ourselves and just keep running out because they'll win. Where they, where they let the dolls into the yeah. room and Amy goes, but yeah, that I'm sure that's Amy's worst plan ever. That wasn't the brightest idea. It was just to change Amy for no apparent reason to try and make, uh, maybe make it scary because Amy turns into a doll. Yes. And it's just like, she's clearly not going to end up being a doll at the end of the episode. Well, how's she being a doll all the time? If Stephen Moffat's lawyers are listening, we apologise unreservedly. And I do not have a fixed abode. <laughs> His name isn't Swithin Dobson, it's Oswald Dane. It's Oswald Dane. <laughs> that's not much better, really. Is no, it? in fact, that's worse. So then. Sorry. But I think Anna's raised a very good point. There were some initial um, scenes that were nominally from uh, the boy's point of view early on, where he's got the torch and yeah. he's shining it around the room and there are some strange shadows. But beyond that, we never actually see anything from his perspective. And I think, uh, again, this is a point that James raises in his review um, on the blog, that as soon as it's established that George is an alien and isn't really a small boy at all, then from an audience perspective we lose any sort of sympathy or mm. empathy with him very, very quickly. And it's the father who suddenly becomes the empathetic figure. 
and our way. Well, I think the father all along was supposed to be the empathetic mm. figure, but they, they kind of lose that sense. It's like, all cute kids, do we go from kid's point of view, or do we go from the adult's point of view? And uh, I think they, they would have been better, maybe, well, I'm biased in this respect, than thinking that they, they could have done better with fitting just strictly with the adult's point of view, mainly because I like the guy who... Um, the father, uh, yes, the uh, Pete's from Ashes to Dan, Ashes. Yes, Daniel Williams. In fact, I like him so much, I might just talk about Ashes to Ashes for a while here. Yeah? Ashes to Ashes was very, very good. Uh, which he appears in the third series of that. Um, absolutely astounding series. It's the one, I think I've said in the previous week actually, when I saw him in the trailer, it's the one series that I've ever known that ends perfectly. Yes. Uh, most finale tend to fall a bit flat, but I thought Brilliant. the Ashes to Ashes third series there. Was, oh, was fantastic and so well done. It's, it's got a midget and there are some rockets taking off. And mm. it's all like it's around. So it ends like it starts, really. <laughs> <laughs> if James had written it, there'd be more velocities. Oh, okay. <laughs> and more things would blow up. Yeah, would blow blow up. The village would have blown up. Yes, yes. that's true. Oh, but yes, do check out Ashes to Ashes if you haven't yet seen it. Um, and he is fantastic in it. Uh, he also appears in... Um, a very widely acclaimed um, Yorkshire Ripper trilogy, uh, which I haven't seen yet. But, um, oh, the Red Riding Hood trilogy. Yes. Ah, yes, that's true. He's also in Outcast, which was BBC's big budget original science fiction drama that was on. Oh, yes. And that was <laughs> all I blanked on. that from my memory. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't think I even had to blank it. Evaporated. Redcon. Morning Dew. It was. Oh. Yeah. It was fantastically large budget with a brilliant cast and just absolutely no story. It was humdrum, menial, by the numbers, kitchen syndrome you could possibly hope for, but set on. The script was that bad that you just cut the dialogue I did with the hat, which had long, lingering, arty shots, and they could have claimed it was ever above everybody didn't understand it for a second <laughs> season. That's what I would have done if I was producer. <laughs> but yes, the, the guy who plays Keith, who, to my shame, I haven't. Learn his name at all. Daniel Mays. Uh, Daniel Mays uh, was very good, and I could have done, you know, just a whole episode based around him, really, mm. with the, everyone else's extras. Yes. Um, but no, I, I thought he was very good, apart from, I think, as one of you mentioned previously, his uh, falling through a wardrobe yes. acting. Uh, that yes. was my point, yes. Yeah, no, that was, uh, yes. Matt Smith, of course, having had a year and a half to practice his shaky acting. Or shaky for I should say. Not shaky. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's quite solid. Um, but no, Daniel May has just sort of mugged and waved his arms a bit. Yeah. But we can forgive him that. Um, I, I, do, I do think it's worth mentioning that, that scene where they were both sucked into the cupboard, highly reminiscent of the scene in Poltergeist, where the vortex opens in the child's bedroom. And the same sort of flashing light effects in the room, compressing and all the child's toys getting sucked into it. Uh, so the other... The thing that's worth mentioning about this episode is the fact that uh, its position in the running order was shifted from the first half of the series to the second. It was originally going to be episode three, and of course it swapped places with Curse of the Black Spot, which was the pilot episode. So Amy is a doll who turns into a doll at this point. Yes, yes. that's a very good point. <laughs> yes. that. As originally scheduled, yes, she's a, a flesh avatar who gets turned into a doll. Oh, I hadn't considered that, but yes, obviously Flash avatars can get turned into dog. Yeah, that's it. Why not? There we are. But of course, there, there is reference to the flesh that's made. Right at the end, it's always yeah. Doc talking to Rory and Amy. 
always good to meet back in the flesh again. Pat on back, cut. End of, end of episode, which would have well, led into... followed by the Doctor's death day scene. Which I assume was cut in later. You'd assume so, yeah. Because yeah. they edited in um, that shot of Madame Kavari and the eye patch lady opening the hatchway mm. in the Curse of the, Curse of the Black, Black Spot, Spot, which wasn't in there originally. Um, but yes, no, of course, that would have been a, a little clue, a reference to what was going to happen at the end of the episode. Mm. And his name is just a sort of curious remnant of a plot that's already been resolved. Unless there's something similar in the next one, because we do get the actually very good uh, next time trailer. By mm. far the best yes. next time it's done for a long time. Short and sweet and odd and intriguing. Yeah, I've just no idea what's going on. It's, it looks quite interesting. You have two enemies. Well, precisely what I was saying about the you know potential flesh. Yes, no, it looks like, looks like um, Alice in Wonderland meets, meets THX one one three hundred vision. Mm. Kind of reminded me of those what were supposed to be high tech dinosaur robots they released a while back. Oh, Velociraptorsaurus things. Yeah. A bit rubbish. Yeah, yeah. Actually, life size version of those would have been cool. That would be cool. <laughs> I think James is going to add that to his list when he becomes a producer. What's, <laughs> what, what's, what's better than, a, than, an, than an actual Velociraptor? A robot. A robot Velociraptor, which is 300 feet high. Uh, so yes, it was moved, but both of these episodes were both essentially arc-free episodes. Where does everyone stand on the relative um, frequency of arcs and arc-free stories? I do wish that they would sort out some sort of balance in between having these arc-heavy storylines that are specifically there to advance the series plot, like the two um, almost people. Uh, Rebel Flashers mm-hmm. and these ones that are purely standalone. That, as far as we're aware, there might be a twist coming that we don't know about. Possibly, um, that are completely detached from the ongoing story. Um, now, for all of that, I really enjoyed the Doctor's Wife, and that was completely detached from the ongoing plot. So, I, I'm, as I say, as far as I'm concerned, this was a filler episode, mm-hmm. and it was perfectly competent. I'm quite happy for it to be filler. But most other series do seem to manage the balance between ongoing plot and standalone a little better. This you only do one or the other, not two, generally. Yes. With the added odd scenes like the, the screen on the TARDIS was the date of his death. I find that hugely annoying. Just I just wish they had just left that. Tacked onto the end of every single yeah. episode. Ominous. There will be, um, Ominous. There will Ominous. Be the same, sh- almost the same shot as in previous weeks where someone looks at something on a monitor. And was trying to keep it a secret from somebody else. We had Amy's got the doctors knowing the date of his death. So it's, it's yeah, cool. they could have just not. If they're going to do a, if you're going to do an art free story, just don't put that scene in. Mm. You know, or that shot in, and just carry on happily with your art for the story. But yeah, it would be nice if they found some sort of balance. My my general opinion on art art plots is you either do an art or you don't do an art. One of the reasons why I think that art plots can get a bit overbearing is the fact that they're clearly supposed to be the entire series and they're not actually that long. They, do, they don't have enough material to do the entire series. That's why you have the standalone episodes. And then you have to just put references in. It just becomes so overbearing because it's not just doing, doing a nice, concise art story. Yeah. It should be fine about nice six or seven episodes. Or longer if you can do it like that, but barely you can get that far. So... Even Tor- Torchwood has been struggling with that. This oh, Torchwood has been yes. horrendous. Torchwood, this series Torchwood, has about four episodes of plot. Yes. 
I'd like I'd said less than four. Oh, all right, three and a half. Yeah. But I was being nice for a change. Okay. Yes. I really? like all the bits I saw of Lost. To be fair, I did drop it fairly early on, and it was supposed to get brilliant after that. The stupid thing is, lost all the action to face some flashback. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's only about as far as I got. So I there's so three or four, and then I heard that there were about six seasons. I was like, so I'm going to have to wait for six seasons to find out anything about what's going on. Yeah. No, there were ten, weren't there? And I watched the last season, and you still don't know what's going on. <laughs> well, as, 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 well I'm, I'm, again, like Anna, I, I dropped Lost fairly early on once it became clear that. As Swithin said, all of the action, all the drama and the character development was taking place in the past tense. Nothing was actually happening on the island that they were still well-dressed and clean and perfectly healthy. I think they, they built a golf course in week four or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. and I, was, I was still waiting for them to start eating each other. <laughs> it, it, it just wasn't the kind of show tonally that I've been hoping for. And I'm, I'm sure it did get perfectly good. They never got to eat each other, sadly. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm digressing hugely. They did get uh, a guest yeah. star from Babylon 5, from what I hear, though. Yes. Oh, they, they got a few guest stars, Ambassador like... Delenn, and they tried to pretend that she was French, just because she had the baby in European accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the Captain Corelli she's, syndrome. She's German or Polish or something. No, she's French. Oh, who knows. But, um, again, as I said, I am digressing. I, I think the creators of Lost had um, these tremendously long series forced upon them because they started with a fairly neat, I think it was only supposed to be one season long when they started, um, but the network would only agree to commission them if they could work out a plot for four mm. seasons or something like that, so they could spread everything out and create an awful lot of filler. So that's kind not, of what Torch would have done. Oh, I don't think Torch would have just one season, isn't it? <laughs> we, we have a concept, we I need to make a series of it. I, I, I think, yeah, I think. Torchwood Miracle Day started with a concept and then started production and then they started they started casting around for a story to attach to it. But we're going to be we're going to be doing the Torchwood podcast immediately after this one, so we'll save it for that. (laughs) So what would you say was a good example of a story arc then? In In just any kind of any series that you think kind of the, the story arc structure that you would. Favourite. Well, the best example of that Titus one is the singing detective, who, uh, the oh, what's he called? Dennis Potter. But that, that, that but that's brilliantly tight. It, it it just does what it wants to do for the whole six episodes, and and it's done. It's about six and a half hours long. But yeah, it's got a story he wants to tell, and he tells it, and it stops. He doesn't try and think, oh, it's not long enough. We need to make another six episodes and, and, uh, and, and put it in between. And generally, I like it because there's generally quite a few few main characters as well. I, I, I generally get annoyed with large main casts. See, I think that's where Talks with Children of Earth really excelled. It had a small cast. It had yes five hours to play with. It started with a story already mapped out. It did everything. There was no filler particularly you know, to talk about in any way. It's kind of knowing when to end, basically, isn't it? Mm, that's it. I, I just think a lot of the time... They want to. The story really isn't actually that long to tell, but because of way TV schedules work, they have mm. to run it for longer. Mm. And then they're running around adding character, put a little subplot in, run around for a, couple, a bit of an episode or a half, just to bump it up to a sellable length. Well, I'll be very interested to see what Moffat does next year, because of course we've already been told that there are only going to be a handful of episodes broadcast in the series next year because they're holding everything over for 2013 and the uh, 50th anniversary mm-hmm. that's the official excuse 
<laughs> knows what's actually going on. <laughs> We've only got enough budget for one good series every two years. Well, this is it. We've had two executive producers walk off the show this year. There have been rumours of all sorts of uh, mythical tombs and thrones. But that's another argument mm-hmm. for another time. Um, we're only going to get, I think it's four, possibly five episodes in 2012. So. Uh, we might be in luck and have a very tight knit. That um, would be nice. Mini series. But if you want to see my rumblings on this, I've already written on on that uh, on on the blog. So yes, yeah. if, if you haven't read uh, Swithin's article, Doctor Who Arch to Infinity, and the yeah. story Arch to Infinity, yeah. and yeah. Uh, we'll add the link in the show notes. Do check it out; it's worth a read. Uh, so, guys, I think that uh, covers more or less everything. That yeah. We, uh, for people following along on the bingo at home, were there any controversial points in terms of uh, oh, uh, the bingo. arguments about I, whether anything... We had a new use for the science screwdriver because we decided that the... Um, the embarrassment setting. Yes, the embarrassment oh, yes. setting. So there was talk about the, the doctor's setting. comment needing to find a setting for the science screwdriver when it's embarrassed. Was, was that there? a joke or an actual use? <laughs> it's a throwaway line, but then Moffat, I think in series one, was going to have it transform into a toothbrush at one point as well. And then of course we had the um, young child meets the doctor. Uh, we, did, yeah. Yeah. Friends, the doctor. We, we did have um, improbable means of contacting the doctor through time and space. I'm not sure if it counts as improbable. But we had that last week, didn't paper. we? So yes, psychic we paper but we've so. never had him hone in like that. It, it is the second time since Moffat took over showrunner that a young child has been praying mm. in their bedroom at night and the doctor oh, has yes. answered. That a, Unintentionally, the first time. Same time. Perhaps not coincidentally. I think we crossed up a couple more. I can't remember. Yes, there, there, are, there are a few that came up. Jamie Dodgers was in there. Ah, yes. Jamie Dodgers. Do let us know how you're getting on with the Moffat Bingo. We hope you're enjoying it. If you want us to produce um, any more cards, let us know. Uh, but otherwise, I think we'd better wrap this up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, any final thoughts that we haven't shared? We've covered everything, I think. Yeah, so yeah. Middling filler. Yeah. Middling filler episode. Not the yeah. best, not the worst. Certainly not Mark Gates's worst. No. no. <laughs> okay. So I think it's not Uwe Boll's worst. No. Thoroughly average. <laughs> there we go. Do let us know what you thought. Um, leave us a comment on the blog uh, or like us on Facebook and uh, come and post on the wall there. I suspect most of our comments will be about how you good Lost is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want to take issue with Lost, please do. That's fine. As I say, well, I, for one, didn't really watch it. I'm quite happy to have my opinion changed. I watched the last series. Yeah. Did it make any sense? No. no. Okay. My parents watched the whole thing and it still didn't make any sense. <laughs> anyway. Let us know your recommendations for good arc plots, bad yes. arc plots, indeed. Yeah, that's perfectly good. Give us a shout out for your favourites, and we will speak to you again soon. Bye bye. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to The Impossible Podcast. For more Doctor Who commentaries, plus other science fiction and fantasy reviews and discussions, please visit our website, impossiblepodcasts.blogspot.com, or search for us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or email us via impossiblepodcasts at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.
Use of sonic screwdriver. He's making toys work. Yeah, well, well. It's a, a, again, the new use of the sonic screwdriver. I, I should really be new function of the sonic screwdriver. Because making things work. Is yeah, it's making electronic oh, things okay. come to life. If it were, I don't know. Say because we've seen it making as a medical meditate? scanner. We've seen it do all sorts of things that uh, it hasn't traditionally been able to do. It scans the cupboard. It does, but that's just being used as a scanner again, which mm. has been become fairly well established. I, I'm of the the, the the school of thought that the sonic screwdriver should be a Swiss Army knife as opposed to a magic wand. I think, mm, especially towards the end yeah. of the Tenant era, it's becoming more and more of a it's very much do a everything yeah. sort of. It ended up being a, a proper fetish item, as it was imbued with special power. When, uh, yes, I suppose so. I think that's. I, I, was, I was starting to worry there when you were saying. <laughs> no, 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 What did you do with the horse on its screwdriver? No, in the original use of the word, um, hmm. it, it genuinely became that. It was imbued with special power. Uh, the thing that really annoyed me with the sonic screwdriver in the Rossi Davis era, and I'm amazed that it hasn't. It wasn't picked up on more by the fans in the Age of Steel the introduction of the Cybermen yeah. back in series 2 it had a make Cybermen go away setting where they're hiding in the back alley they're trapped, the Cybermen are stomping down the alley to look for them the Doctor points the sonic screwdriver at them, they turn away and walk off that's never used again and it's never mentioned presumably they're picking up on the fact that if the Cybermen have electronic circuitry inside them the sonic mm. screwdriver can influence them but in that case, why don't you just use it every time? Yes. That was just the laziest get-out that I've why ever seen. Why are the Cybermen ever a problem, then? If you yes, why like won't any sort of robotic enemies ever <laughs> Yeah. problem if you can just point the sonic screwdriver at them and make them turn around and leave you alone? 